Shawshank Redemption is one of those classic movies about hope. Uh, The series we've been talking about a life well led, about uh, the opportunities for leadership God gives us in our life and the places where we have to lead. And uh, what I want to talk about this morning is just the leader's job to instill hope. Uh, You know, every great leader, one of their primary responsibilities is to breathe hope into the life of their organization or the people that are leading. And so for you, that may be uh, within your own home or an organization, or it could be here at a church, uh, wherever it may be that God has placed you in a role of leadership to have influence over others. One of your jobs is to provide hope. Now, before I get too far deep into this, uh, I used to always have an issue with hope because I remember reading in, in Hebrews, it said, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. So it always seemed to me like as if, well, I mean, faith is here and hope is here and, and faith is better than hope, right? It just kind of seems like that because when you read in Hebrews, it says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. It's kind of like, well, hope's like this murky sort of thing where you kind of like a lot, got a lot of uncertainty, but if you really are kind of like going to the next level as a Christian, you'll move from hope into faith. And so I used to kind of think that there was like hope and then there was faith. And then you read over in 1 Corinthians, but the greatest of these is love. So it's like you got you know, there's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. So it was almost like as if, well, hope's kind of down here uh, for like those entry-level people. They, they kind of have some hope. And then when you kind of grow in your, in your relationship with God, then you, then you move from hope to faith. And then when you're really like killing it on all levels, then you move from faith into to, to love or something. I, that's not at all what that, all that stuff means. Um, <laughs> I, one day it was explained to me better like this. Uh, hope is on the emotional side. Faith is on the intellectual side. Uh, when, when, when Paul talks about how we, we've, you know, faith is being sure of what we hope for, he's, he's saying we've got some evidence so I can now intellectually look at what I'd hoped would happen after death because of the evidence of what I've seen Jesus Christ do come back from the dead because of the resurrection. I now can believe with a sense of faith, a logical, it, it makes logical sense that there is life after death considering we've seen Jesus Christ come back from the dead and walk around. That's where he's getting it. But all of humanity has a hope that there's something that, that's beyond this life, Right? Hope is on the emotional side, and that was another reason why I had an issue with hope, because, I don't know, emotions is just kind of like sort of wishy-washy kind of thing. Like, you know, I mean, faith, let's, let's, let's talk about faith, because faith is where we can sort of like, you know, analyze stuff, make wise decisions. And after all, we all make decisions logically, right? Okay. The reality is we make most of our decisions emotionally right? And some of you guys are thinking, well, I make logical decisions. It's women who make emotional decisions. (laughs) Explain to me your bass boat purchase or pretty much any of your Amazon purchases. How many of those are logical, thought out? When you sit in Dave Ramsey and you look back, you realize, right, how many of those things were emotional purchases. So many of our decisions are emotional decisions. And the reason why we quit and give up in life is not typically an intellectual decision. It's usually an emotional decision. You got to the point where you just didn't think it was ever going to be possible. Something within you said, what's the point? And so you quit and you gave up, which is why it's so important in the role of a leader is to be one who instills hope in those who they are leading. Because the people who are, who are following or people who are there that, that God's placed you in a position of influence over are going to have these moments where they get down, where they don't, see like as if, they don't feel like as if there's ever going to be an end to what it is that they're facing. Now, this would be parents uh, providing hope into kids uh, because there's moments where 
they'll feel like as if I'm never gonna learn this. I'm never gonna figure this out. I'm never gonna get this skill. It doesn't matter whether it's athletics or academics or playing an instrument in the band. There's always those moments where you feel like as if I'm never going to be able to figure this out. Uh, it could be you know, in your life, maybe uh, for those of you who, who are part of Celebrate Recovery, there's, there's, there's a season of time when you're going through the recovery process where you feel like as if, I don't know if this is ever gonna happen. I don't think I'm ever gonna get to the point where I can celebrate this. I think I'm gonna be struggling with this my entire life. And one of the, the roles of, of the coach in that situation, your, your, your mentor in that situation is to, is to instill hope. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You just gotta keep going. One more step, one more step, one more step. If you look at the greatest leaders throughout time, this is what they did, is they instilled hope. And sometimes you look back, and because you know how things end, you don't realize the hope that they were instilling and pushing towards those they were leading. Like, for instance, Martin Luther King. We, we, we know how that played out, ultimately, with the Civil Rights Movement. But if you go back to the very beginning of the I Have a Dream speech, he says this, I'm not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. And then he continues to focus their eyes on the road ahead. And he says, let us not wallow in the valley of despair. This is our hope. And this is the faith that I go back to the south with. This faith uh, that, that we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. So he was continually trying to pour hope into those who were part of the movement because of the difficulty. And were, there's a moment where you want to give up and quit because you don't think it's ever going to happen. There's another great story about hope. Uh, found in Jim Collins' book, uh, Good to Great, where he talks about the, the Stockdale principle. Admiral Stockdale was the highest ranking POW in Vietnam. And in talking with him, he, he asked about how is it that you were able to you know, go through that difficult time as a prisoner of war uh, with such adverse conditions. And he says, I never lost faith in the end of the story, he said. I never doubted not only that it would get out, but also that it would prevail in the end and turn this experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. He goes on to say, you know, I didn't say anything for a few moments as we just continued to walk around. And then I turned to him and I asked him, I said, who didn't make it out of the, of the POW camps? And he said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. Now pause for a second. Right in the middle of a message on hope, you hear this moment where you say, wait a minute, the optimists are the people who have a problem? I thought you were just telling me I need to be an optimist. Isn't that kind of like what the guy who's a purveyor of hope is? Here's what he says, though. He said, Colin says, the optimist, I don't understand. Uh, he says the optimists. They're the ones who said, oh, we're going to be out by Christmas, and then Christmas would come and go. Oh, we're going to be out by Easter, then Easter would come and go. Then they'd look to Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving would come to go, and then it'd be Christmas again. And he said they would die of a broken heart, and then they would just die. And he goes on, and he says, after a long pause, he says, this was a very important lesson we had to learn. You must never confuse the faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. And so he said, I would turn to the optimists and I'd say to them, we're not getting out by Christmas, deal with it. We will get out, that's the hope, but it's not going to be on your timetable. That's the reality of it. And so that Stockdale principle of sort of the hope, but yet still you know, facing the brutal facts of your current situation, uh, that's what true leadership is. It's not just blowing up smoke into somebody and saying, oh, it's all going to be great, we're all going to get out soon. No, it's, let's look at the reality, but know that in the end we will prevail. And so with that same thought, I, I want to look at a, a passage uh, in Mark chapter 6 uh, where disciples are struggling with, with issues of hope, and for good reason. Uh, and Jesus uh, is trying to instill it within them or teach them a lesson uh, about hope, about faith, about trusting in God in the midst of those difficult situations. 
Now, the setting for this is it's right after Jesus feeds the 5,000. If you know a little bit about Jesus and his ministry, uh, there's a time where he's teaching and people are following after him and they kind of get in this remote place. Everybody's hungry. Uh, there's no place to go get food. And the disciples are like, hey, you know, everybody's hungry. You, you got to send these people away soon. And Jesus says, well, why don't you guys give them something to eat? They're like, we don't have anything to eat. And so he says, well, what can you come up with? And they come up with five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus ends up taking those five loaves of two bread, uh, five loaves of bread and two fish, and ends up feeding 5,000 people with it. Amazing moment. What you're going to see, though, is as amazing as that moment is, the disciples kind of missed it, right? And you think, well, how could that be? Well, let's let this play out. So right after that, it says, so immediately, so this is right after all that happens, right after they feed the 5,000, it says immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. And they're, so they're crossing the, the Sea of Galilee here. He says, while he dismissed the crowd. So after leaving the disciples, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, where he's at on the mountainside is a place where you can go, go up on top of this mountainside and you can see out over uh, the Sea of Galilee from there. It says, when the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on, and Jesus was, was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the sea. And he was about to pass them by, but when, he saw, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, this is where I always have a hard time with Bible translation because it just sort of like moves to like this zombie Jesus. <laughs> Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Like, how do you read that and, and understand the context? I'm going to give you probably a better translation, which kind of gets put in the setting in a little while, but... Just sometimes you'll read things and you'll be like, that just seems like a very odd moment. They're like rowing as hard as they can and he just says, take courage, it is I. <sighs> sometimes I just wish they would translate something the way it more likely was said in English. Um, it says, then he climbed in the boat with him and the wind died down and they were completely amazed for they didn't understand about the loaves. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, for their hearts were hardened. Uh, then they crossed over to land and they anchored there. Um, I want to talk about some things that are enemies of hope. Uh, Number one on the list is when you think you should be there by now. Uh, in other words, when, when it takes longer than it should, uh, when there's an uncertainty if you'll ever get there. Uh, what's the worst thing you can hear whenever you're doing any kind of road trip with kids? Oh, you already know. It's, it's, are we there yet, right? Uh, my kids would ask that before we're even across the, the HRBT. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> have you seen anything you haven't seen on a typical month yet? I mean, come on, we're... How could we possibly be there? We're, we haven't even gotten across the water yet. I mean, come on. And so my kids, my kids quit asking the question because I would always answer the same answer. I'd say, about five more minutes. <laughs> now, when they were younger, they didn't know what five minutes was versus five hours. So they'd be like, oh, okay. And then about an hour later, they'd be like, I thought you said five more minutes. I'm like, well, it has been five more minutes and it'll be at least another five more minutes before we're there. So they got to the point they just quit asking. But the issue is, is you know, we wonder how much longer is it going to be because whenever we have this sense that this should be a quicker process than it really is going to take, we lose hope. As I mentioned before, that happens with addiction recovery. Uh, it happens with parenting. Uh, for some of you, it's happened in your Navy career or on every deployment. Uh, you get to the point where you just don't think it's ever going to end. Uh, you're never going to get there at some point. Uh, and that's the way it is anytime you're, if you've ever crossed any kind of body of water in a boat, you get to that moment where you can't see the shore behind you and you can't see the shore ahead of you and you don't feel like you're going anywhere. 
Worse for them is they really weren't going anywhere. <laughs> uh, so just to kind of give you some of the math on this, it says uh, they got in the boat in the evening. So somewhere between 3 to 6 p.m. is when they get in the boat. The fourth watch of the night is somewhere, um, make sure I get this right, between 3 and 6 a.m. So they've been in the boat now somewhere between 6 and 12 hours, okay? And they're only about halfway across, which means they're only about three miles out. You do the math on that, they're going somewhere between a quarter mile an hour and a half mile an hour. That's not moving very much. So you literally feel like you're rowing in place, okay? And if you've ever tried to row against a current or against a wind, you, you know what they're going through. You get to the point where you literally feel like as if, what is the point? We are not making any progress. But the very fact that they're out in the middle does say they're making progress. One of the greatest enemies of hope is when it's going to take a lot longer than you think it is. That's what the Stockdale par- par- Paradox is all about. He says, listen, we're not getting out by Christmas. Deal with it. We are going to get out. You will get to the other side. It's just going to take you a lot longer than you thought. And there are some of you in your life you think to yourself, I thought I'd be further along in my life than I am right now. Uh, how could I be 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever it may be, wherever you're at, and you think to yourself, God, I thought I'd be a lot further along than by now. I thought I'd be there by now. I thought, I thought this would be, you know, we'd be done with this. I thought I'd be to the point where I could celebrate my recovery. I thought it would be the point where I wouldn't be taking a blue chip every single time I come because I keep on starting back over and starting back over and starting back over. Why is it that I'm just not there anymore? Uh, Another issue that comes up with, with an enemy of our hope is uh, the delays, uh, where, where it seems like as if it's taking longer than you thought because there's these setbacks, and so this wind comes up right in their face, and it comes at them, and there's the uncertainty, are we ever going to get there? And I was asked when I was at camp a couple weeks ago by one of the kids about, why doesn't God just tell us the future? You ever wondered that? Like, why God didn't just tell us, like, what's going to happen? Just, just lay it all out for me and tell me. Uh, and, and I've shared this with you all in the past, years ago, I remember talking about this. It's the same reason why, and this is a good time since we're not to football season yet, but it's coming up soon. Um, don't ever text me anything about any team that I like, okay, just for the record, and I don't care if you like them or not. I like the Dolphins, I like the Florida State Seminoles, and I like Manchester United. Don't you ever, ever text me anything about any of those teams. Because as a pastor... I will willingly lay down the opportunity to watch the game live to serve all of you people <laughs> or my children because after all, you and they come before my game. It's hard sometimes, but you do, okay? I have done weddings. I have done funerals. I have done church events in lieu of being, you know, watching the game that I want, uh, even though I've been tempted to be like doing the wedding with like my phone right here going, dearly beloved, we gather here today. <laughs> Haven't done it, but been tempted, right? I don't, mind the, I, don't mind, I don't mind watching it later. What I do mind is when one of you texts me and says, oh, sorry about your team. <laughs> so let me ask you. Now, if your team was going to lose, would you want to know that they were going to lose while you're watching the game? So sometimes you think to yourself, well, then I wouldn't have to watch it. Yeah, but it would, but do you realize I still enjoy watching even though my team loses, right? I mean, it's, it's been like a way of life for my Dolphins, <laughs> for my Seminoles. You Redskin fans can relate. <laughs> come on now, you all made the, the, the playoffs almost with a losing record. Don't even get coming, oh, yeah, we were in the playoffs. Yeah, uh-huh. 
be that as it may. You see, I watch a game, and you know what I have when I watch a game, even though we're losing? I have hope. Even when there's no reason. It's not logical. Remember, hope's not logical. Hope is, is, a, is a love. It's a belief. It's something that keeps me watching every time we go down another touchdown and down another touchdown and down another touchdown. I, come on, Redskin fan, you with me on this? You still have hope, right? You still have hope that you're going to pull it out until somebody sends you that text and says, ah, man, sorry to hear about the game. It just sucks out of, all of it out of it, doesn't it? And sometimes I wonder why God won't just tell me what's going to happen. Even, even if, you know, in, I'd, I'd rather know that we're going to lose, God. I'd rather know that, that, that they're not going to make it. I'd rather know that this is not going to happen. Just, just tell me now so we don't have to go this path. And God says, yeah, but that's going to suck everything out of this life. I can't. I can't. I've been frustrated at God for not telling me some things that have happened along the way. He says, I can prepare you for them, but I'm not going to tell you them. You just have to let them play out. And so they're in this situation where they're like, when is this ever going to end? And, and wouldn't it be great if Jesus had just said, get in the boat. Here's what's going to happen. A wind's going to come up. It's going to be really difficult. I'll walk out and see you guys in a little while. Everything's going to be okay. Right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? There's a reason, though, he doesn't do that. And we'll get to that here uh, in a second. Uh, let's see, moving on down. Uh, another thing that, that robs our hopes is when expectations aren't met. Uh, why are they in this boat? Anybody remember? Are they in this boat because they disobeyed Jesus or because they obeyed Jesus? It says in there, if you notice, it says immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Now, typically whenever bad things happen in my life, it's a moment where I pause, I kind of rewind some things and say, okay, what mistake did I make to get myself here? What am I doing to receive God's punishment? Like when, you know, when life just doesn't go out, go work right, the air conditioner gives out, your car gives out, uh, nothing seems to go according to plan. By the way, this has been my past week here. Um, nothing is going according to plan. You have these moments where you go, okay, God, I give, I give. Just tell me what I did wrong. I would love to make up for it. I'd rather start following you again. Whatever I'm doing wrong, let me know so I can get back into the place of blessing, right? You, you feel with me on this? Like, you, you sort of feel like if things are going bad, it's obviously because I've done something wrong. They're going against the wind, and it's not because they've done something wrong. It's the opposite. It's because they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. And this is one of the most frustrating things I've found in life, is that following God does not mean the wind's always going to be at your back. Sometimes following God is going to push you straight into the current. Sometimes it's going to push you right against all of your friends. It's going to push you right against everything you want to do. It's going to seem like as if the whole world is conspiring to keep you from progressing down the path that you want to go. If you've been through recovery, you know what it's like, right? It's like, why? God, can't you help me out with this? I mean, if there's anything you should bless, it's this, isn't it? I mean, that's where Paul's like, God, three times I've asked you just to take this away from me, but you won't do it. Why? 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 So they're in a situation where God has purposely put them out there into the wind. And we'll get back to why that is in a little bit. Uh, another thing that can, can rob your hope is when you feel alone or abandoned. If you continue on in the story, it says, about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the sea. This sounds like a good part, right? Like, okay, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I'm praying for in my life, that at some point God will come out to the sea and he'll rescue me. But then this is just classic. This is so real to life, isn't it? It says, 
and he was about to pass them by. Just let that sink in. You're rowing. Jesus walking on the scene. He's like, <laughs> see you on the other side, right? <laughs> Ever felt that way? <laughs> I'm dying over here, Jesus. I'm dying. Oh, look, he's coming. He, he's, com- he, he's, he's not stopping. He's not stopping. He's just, oh, they're getting a blessing. Oh, they're getting a, an express pass. What's going on over here? Why are you just kind of leaving me out here alone? Now, they feel alone when they're out there on the sea. Worse yet, when they think they see him, he's about to pass them by to the point where then they think he's a ghost and so now they're terrified of whatever this vision is that they're seeing because now they're seeing something crazy out on the water. So instead of him being a comforting presence, it only seems to scare them all the more. Um, but they feel alone and abandoned in this moment. Now, were they ever alone? No. When they were out on the sea, where was Jesus? On the mountaintop. And from the mountaintop, he could what? It said, and he saw them out on the lake. He saw them. They, they weren't ever out of his vision. Uh, as a kid, that would often happen. Um, you know, little kids oftentimes, you know, when, you, when you put them to bed, uh, when you close the door and you walk out of the room, remember there was that season where they would just freak out because they were all alone in the room, right? Because they, they don't have any concept of understanding you're just on the other side of the door or you're watching them on the monitor. They have no concept of that. Um, I had some really fun times with my kids, especially Jewel. You know, when they would get out of bed, I would come in, put them back in, and Jewel would be like, how's he doing this? You know, and so she would like put her toe down, (laughs) trying to figure out like, I think he's watching, but I don't know how he's doing it, right? They have no concept, no ability to realize that Jesus sees them this entire time. And in your life, when you're going through difficult seasons and everything's against you, you'll feel like as if God's forgotten you. He doesn't know what you're going through. Do you care, God? Do you even know what's going on right now? And he'd come back and say, yeah, I know what's going on. I put you there. I sent you out there for a purpose. And I'm watching the whole time. And I'm coming right now. And then you get to this thing where he says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Um, I'm going to retranslate that for you. Don't be afraid, guys. Show some courage. It's me. Same language, right? But I think that's probably more like he said, hey, 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 hey. Don't be afraid, guys. Come on, buck up. Show some courage. It's me. It's me. Now, who's saying it's me? Who's saying it's me? Jesus, yeah. But who is, who is, who is me? They knew him as Jesus. They got it was Jesus. But do they know who Jesus is right now? That's why it says in here, it says, he climbed the boat with him, the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. Here's the thing you need to pick up on. For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. What does it mean by that? Well, they had just been out in a situation where they were faced with an impossible task, right? You got 5,000 people, everybody's hungry, we've got nothing to feed them. Jesus says, you feed them. They said, we can't feed them, this is an impossible thing. How can we, you know, it would take a year's wages to feed all these people. Where are we ever going to come up with that? Well, what do you got? I can use whatever you got, whatever you got, we can use. He says, all we can come up with is five loaves of bread and two fish. But what is that going to do with a big crowd like this? Jesus, we are in a situation that is impossible and you don't seem to get it. And he's looking back at them thinking to himself, well, that's because you don't know who I am. Give me what you have. He blesses it. They feed 5,000 people. Wow, that was a miracle from God. I wonder how Jesus pulled that off. 
they still struggled to grasp he is God. And it's easy for us to judge that, but we oftentimes forget that he is God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the maker of all things. There is nothing that is impossible for him. Years ago, I remember hearing a pastor once say, when you say I'm possible, you just have a grammar issue. Separate out the I am, put an apostrophe in there, and it's just God saying I'm possible. When you get to the place where you say it's impossible, it's just God looking at you saying I'm possible. And so Jesus is coming out on the, on the and watch, he's like, guys, 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 don't be afraid. Take courage. It's me. It's me. And if you knew who me is, you wouldn't be afraid right now. Because the me is God who put you in this boat and sent you out here. Am I going to push you out here to your death? No. But even if he did, could you be cool with that? You know, one of the passages that I, I was very pivotal in my life was uh, from Hebrews chapter 11. It's right after you read about all these miraculous moments where God does all these kind of, you know, feeding 5,000 and calming winds and seas and shutting the mouth of the lion and all these other things, amazing things happen. Then you get to the very end and it's like, well, and there are some people, the lions got to eat that night. (laughs) There were some people that didn't walk through the fire that got burned up by it. There were some people that didn't escape the sword. They were cut in half by it. You're kind of like, that doesn't make me feel so good there, Steve. I thought your whole point was here to bring in hope. And, and in Hebrews 11, he finishes it off with, and he just says, you know, their hope was in a better resurrection. God had an even better resurrection in store for them. Now, Lazarus was an amazing resurrection, wasn't it? If you go back to the story, Jesus has this friend named Lazarus. He dies, uh, and like three, four days later, Jesus says, Lazarus come forth, and Lazarus comes up out of the grave. Amazing, right? And we would look at that and say, that is an awesome, amazing miracle, You know, an even better resurrection is one that will last for all eternity. And so often, we would would say that we live with an eternal mindset, but we just have a hard time doing it to realize that eternity is far better than anything in this life. Uh, Last thing I'll finish out with is a story um, that I've shared here years ago. um, It's one I was talking to the kids at camp about a couple weeks ago. There's a scene in the Old Testament that always bothered me. Uh, and it was a story of Moses. Now, last week I talked about Moses, and God calls him at the burning bush. And so Moses' life, first 40 years of his life, he grows up uh, as a prince in Egypt, has everything he could ever ask for. Uh, he tries to do the right thing, makes a mistake, ends up sort of being banished from Egypt, and he's out in the wilderness for 40 years working for his father-in-law with a boring, monotonous job of tending sheep. God then comes and speaks to him at the burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt and into the promised land. All right, God, after a lot of, you know, issues with him not wanting to do it, you look, go back to last week, he finally says, okay, and he's going to go do it. And he goes there, and God does all these amazing, miraculous things uh, to allow him to lead the people out of Egypt through the ten plagues and through the Red Sea. They get out into the wilderness. Uh, they're just about to go into the promised land. They get right up on the edge of the promised land, but to no fault of Moses's at that point, the people don't want to go in. They're too scared to. And so God's like, all right, fine, Moses, lead these people in circles out here in the wilderness for the next 40 years. So he does that. He leads them around for 40 years. So now it's time to finally go into the promised land. And people need some water. And years past, you know, Moses would just strike the rock and it would pour forth water. God says, Moses, just speak to the rock. It'll pour forth water. Moses kind of makes a big show of it. And he kind of wants everybody to see that he's kind of the water giver. And so he hits the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And because of that, God says, okay, punishment time. You don't get to go in. Doesn't that seem harsh? 
I mean, the dude's been doing this for 120 years. The last 80 of which has been all leading up to the moment where he could lead his people into the promised land. His whole life, he's had this sense that he was you know, called to lead God's people out of Egypt into the place God wanted them to be. And at the burning bush, he says, yep, you're going to lead him into the promised land. All right, I'm all for it. The people don't want to go. I spend 40 years in the desert wilderness leading a people who are stiff-necked and rebellious, putting up with all of their issues. I make one mistake, and then you lower the boom on me like this. Does that frustrate some of y'all like it does me? Because it makes me frustrated. It kind of gives me the theology of, you know, here's the thing. You follow after God, and he will bless you for it. Unless you happen to make one mistake along the way, then, you know, forget it. He's just going to pull the rug out from underneath you, and you're done for. You with me on that? Which sort of makes a lot of us kind of go, well, I can take a guaranteed thing now, which I know in the end is not going to be the best for me, but hey, at least it's guaranteed. If I wait on God, I never know. He could pull the rug out from under me at the last minute for screwing up. Follow me on this? I always struggled with this element. In the same way that, you know, when I read over in Hebrews about, you know, these people who were served God faithfully, but in the end, they didn't get their miracle and, and seems like God didn't come through for them. And God's like, yeah, but their, their hope was in a better resurrection that was to come. And I used to always have that sense until I was reading one day and I had this moment where I just, I broke down because you ever have those moments where you think God is kind of mean, but then you find out he's not? Not only is he not mean, he's far more gracious than you ever could have possibly imagined. You know what I'm saying? The moment is the transfiguration of Jesus. And if you don't know the story, what happens, shortly before Jesus is going to go to the cross, um, God is going to come down to encourage him. And so he goes up onto the top, I think it's Mount Hermon, uh, with Peter, James, and John. They go up there, and the whole time Jesus has been on earth, he's been in the incarnate body. In other words, he's in a human body. He has humbled himself. He has given up all of his heavenly attributes to be here among us, to have all of the issues that our, prop, that our bodies have, Right? So in this moment, he is sort of transfigured. He, 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 he becomes once again, you know, the, the God of gods, Lord of lords with, the, with his infinite, you know, body in that moment, right before he's about to go to the cross. He has this moment where that happens. Well, God decides he wants to send two people from heaven down to encourage him. Elijah and Moses. And I remember reading it said, and Moses and Elijah stood with Jesus on the mountain. It hit me. Where is Moses standing? In the promised land. You see, I thought when Moses died, the story was over. God doesn't have the opportunity to bless anymore. God can't deliver. God can't do it because the story's over. Not even God could do something now that the story's over, right? The story's never over. You don't have the perspective he has. Now, if you were Moses, just think for Moses, if you were to ask him, hey Moses, did you get the raw deal of not getting to go in the promised land? Or if God had come to Moses and said, okay Moses, would you, what would you rather have? Lead the people into the promised land and to fight the battle of Jericho or be one of the two people that I call up years later to go down and encourage my son before he gives his life for the ultimate act of redemption. Which would you rather? No question. No question. Even when you think 
all hope is lost because it's over, that story reminds me it's not actually ever over. May you never give up hope on the goodness of God and God's character and his power that he is the creator and sustainer of all things. As you're in your long middle and you feel like the winds are against you and you think as if Jesus abandoned you, he's not. He sees you. He's not gonna pass you by, even that's what you thought. It was always his intention to get in that boat. It was always his intention. But he let him go out there because they didn't understand who he was. They didn't get it with the loaves and the fishes, and it would have been a lot easier to have learned that lesson back on the shore. But they didn't. So he sent them out in a very difficult time where they had to get to the point where they had to rely on God to save their skin and bail them out to somehow maybe drive down the message and the reality, it's me. It's me. Do you know who me is? Would you want me to pray? Father, I thank you for your grace above all things. Father, your ways are clearly not our ways. Your ways are so much higher than the heavens are above the earth. Father, forgive us for judging your character or your heart or your nature on our timetable, from our perspective. Father, we see in the story of Moses, Lord, that we cannot possibly comprehend what you're doing from beginning to end. Thousands of years passed but the blessing you ultimately gave was absolutely amazing. Father, may we continue to look to you for hope in the times where we want to quit and give up and never forget who you are and your promise to never leave us nor forsake us. That you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So, Father, may we not give up on you and not lose hope that you'll never give up on us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.